family. Welcome to the teaching for this week. Thanks so much again for joining us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John, and I have the great privilege of being the pastor at Reality. Our teaching this week is based on a passage from 1 Peter 1, so please join with me as I read that for us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though, you're, no, no, though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now down to verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. This is God's word. Well, we're in the middle of a series uh, asking the question, what is the church? And our answers so far have focused name, uh, mainly on the characteristics and the practices of the early church and the church that we are supposed to be now. So as I want to remind us of what these things are since we are a few weeks into uh, the series. Um, the first is that we, uh, the church is a community that learns to partner with God and with one another. So through the invitation of Jesus, we come into a community invited to come close to God and partner with him in his work in the world. And we're invited to join a community of people who are doing that, who are working towards uh, the kingdom of God. And then we looked at Acts for a couple weeks, specifically in Acts 2, and we saw that the church is a community of people who learn to watch and wait for what God is doing in the world. And then we learn to partner with him in that. So we watch and wait for the, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives and in the world, and we partner with God as he reaches out his hands to us. Then we looked at Acts 2.42, a very famous passage. We saw that the church is a community of people who is committed to four things. We're committed to learning. We're committed to one another, to koinonia. We're committed to hospitality. And then we're committed to a set of practices that help us to grow into the people that look like Jesus. And in the last two weeks, we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. We saw that the church is a community of people that are gifted by the Holy Spirit, 
uh, for service to one another. So as the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in our lives, we are given gifts and expressions of, uh, of, of the Holy Spirit in order to serve one another. And last week we talked about the gathering of God's people together. And the church is a community of people that gathers together. We commit, that's one of the spiritual practices that we have, in order to grow into the love and the likeness of Jesus. Now this passage that we're talking about, or read today from 1 Peter, it also talks about what it means to be God's people, but it does it from a slightly different angle, a very important different angle. We've been talking about the characteristics and practices of the church, but 1 Peter talks about some personal shifts that we need to make in order to become these kinds of people that can form this kind of church. Because what we can do with the characteristics of the church that we've looked at so far is we can say, I'm looking for a church that is like this, that's full of people who are people of hospitality, people who are using their gifts for uh, the service of God and one another, people who discipline themselves to gather together. But we have to make shifts as individuals in order to form that kind of church. We have to change in order to become the people who will make that kind of community. And so that, what do I mean by shifts? Well, we've already looked at two of them. They've kind of been interwoven into the sermon series so far, but I wanna make them explicit in this time. So the first shift is from being outside of God's family, people who are outside of God's family, to people who are inside of God's family. Here's a couple ways that First Peter says it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have gone from people who are, the Bible would say, dead, to being newly born, to being alive. And having no hope, the Bible would say, to being people who have a living hope through Jesus. That's what I tried to say last week, that because Jesus has been resurrected, which is what this passage says, because Jesus is alive, there's always hope for those of us who find ourselves in him. Verse 4, it continues, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we're people that go from a focus here uh, in our world to trying to claw ahead for ourselves and create some sort of inheritance that we have here, some sort of life that matters, into a group of people when we come to faith in Jesus who receive an inheritance of being a child of God that's imperishable, it's eternal, it's unfading, it'll never fade away. Verse 18 says it a slightly different way. For you know that you were redeemed from an empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, that all of us had our arrows pointing in different directions that led to emptiness. But not um, that we were redeemed, it says, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That through Christ's death, we are invited into relationship with God to point our arrows towards Jesus and to work towards something that's not empty, but has eternal significance. We've seen this in the, so that's, that's the first shift that we have to make from being outside of God's family to inside of God's family. We saw this in Acts 2 when Peter gives his amazing sermon. The people say, what should we do? What should our response be? And he says, repent, turn your arrows towards God, towards Jesus, and be baptized to make a public proclamation of going from death to life. So that's the first shift that each of us has to make. If we want to be this kind of church, if we want to have these characteristics, then we need to be people who shift from being outside of God's family to inside of God's family. The second shift that we see in this passage, and again, we've already talked about it, is a shift from me-focused to we-focused. This is how 1 Peter says it in verse 22. Since you've purified yourself by obedience to the truth, since we've come from outside to inside, so that you show sincere brotherly love for one another, from a pure heart love one another constantly, because you've been born again. So this second shift follows the first shift. Because we've been born again, because we have received this new life, 
and we, uh, then we are to show sincere brotherly love to one another and, and love one another constantly. And I've used the language, different language, to describe this throughout this series. Like I said, moving, shifting then from a me focus to a we focus, or from being a consumer to being a contributor, from asking what I can get from this group of people, what I can get from coming to a gathering or from being friends with uh, people in the church community, to asking the question about what I can give. What can I give to this community? Uh, last week we talked about this, uh, changing our contract from going to a church gathering, from a transactional contract, which is like I come, I show up, and I'm entertained, to a transformational type of contract, which is to say that I lean in, I take risks, and I open myself up to what God is doing here. So there's a shift that we have to make from me to we, and I can't emphasize enough how important that shift is if we're going to become a group of people that actually uh, it looks anything like this early church. We have to shift from me to we because in our culture, all the gravitational pull is encouraging us to say, what is good for you? What is a place that you want to belong? What fits your needs? And the church is a complete reversal. If we're going to come into God's family, we're invited into a new culture and a new way of thinking about things. And that's an amazing focus on others. Just as Christ has focused on us instead of himself or before himself, we are invited into the same kind of life. And that's just a continual thing for us as followers of Jesus that we have to again and again and again and again choose to focus on we before me. So in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about two more shifts that are really important if we're going to be able to become this kind of community that we see in the Bible. And they're both in this passage, which is why we read it today. And the first shift that I want to look at in our time that we have left is one that's all over 1 Peter. It's in this passage. It's all over 1 Peter. It's all over the New Testament. Um, but it is something that we're pretty silent about in the Western church. And it's right here in verse 6. It says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Suffering and grief. So what is the church? It's a community of people who can learn to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And if we think about the shift that we need to make, I would say it like this. We shift from a group of people who have an assumption about comfort, of comfort in our life, to a group of people who expect to suffer for Jesus. That our expectation of what our lives are is not when I come to faith, now everything is great and smooth sailing, but instead I expect that it will be difficult, that I will suffer, as it says, trials in this, in the, in this passage, that that becomes our new expectation for life. Now, for some of us who are listening, this sounds really odd. It might sound like never, not sound like anything that you've ever heard about Christianity. And, uh, you know, I doubt that any of us have like Christian coffee mugs or t-shirts that say like, I expect suffering or like have this passage, you know, 1 Peter 1, 6, uh, if necessary, I will suffer grief and various trials. Like that's just not on the front of our brain when we think about what it means to follow Jesus. None of us are going to big conferences that are like preparing you to suffer conference. Um, and it's not something that we talk a lot about. So I want to, before we dig into why this is important, I want to just make a case that it is all over the New Testament. So we're going to read some, some different scripture together just to show you how, how often uh, this is talked about when it comes to the expectations that we should have as people who follow Jesus. So let's look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter is uh, maybe the passage or the, the book that talks the most about suffering. So we already read our passage, but let's read a few more. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. When you do good, or do, when, you, when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you're called to this. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. The suffering of Christ is to be an example for us, that we, sh we were called to this, to suffer along with Christ and for Christ. 1 Peter 3, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. He's echoing the words of the Sermon on the Mount here. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your heart regard Christ as Lord, uh, Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. This passage is often used uh, in evangelism and evangelism context, and we'll talk about that soon. But uh, here, when we look at the passage as a whole, the reason that people are asking you for the hope that you have is because you're suffering. Not because you have all the answers or because you're super smart, but because you're suffering and your, your life is weird. So then people are like, hey, what's going on? And at that time, it's like, well, Jesus is part of my life. And here's a really important piece, which is a bit of a sidebar to our conversation, but it says, yet do this with gentleness and reverence, not with nasty Facebook posts or browbeating someone, um, but with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. Down to verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. To suffer for doing good, an expectation. First Peter 4, uh, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same understanding. Since he suffered, that should be our same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Our identification with Jesus should lead us to an expectation of suffering. First Peter 4.12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. As I uh, was preparing this sermon and just putting these verses down, this was one that stood out to me. How often in my own life, I'm just speaking about myself, is, is suffering like surprising to me? Where I'm like, oh God, what's happening? Like, where are you? Why, is this, why would this be happening to me? Look, here's what Peter says. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. As a, that was a convicting verse for me. So that's First uh, Peter, just a few of the, the verses. But this is not just in First Peter, it's all over the New Testament. Let's look at Jesus' words first. John 15, the passage that starts out with Jesus, you know, the beautiful passage, I am the vine and you are the branches, you know, come dwell in me, make your home in me. Just a few verses later, here's what Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Or here's Jesus' words in Luke from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way that the ancestors used to treat the prophets. There's lots to be said here. One of the things I just want to point out is it's like not because you're, people don't hate you because you're a jerk. That's a totally different thing. In this passage, it talks about our identification with Jesus, that that's the reason that we're suffering and that's the reason that we're persecuted. Sometimes people, you're, you're persecuted or people don't like you just because you're a jerk. That's a whole another class of, of teaching. But this is like our identification with Jesus should lead to an expectation of suffering and a blessedness through suffering. Here's a few more passages in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 1. It's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. That we are worthy of God's kingdom for which we are suffering. Just an expectation that that's what we're doing. Philippians 1.29, a, a, a book that we looked at um, a couple years ago. 
For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. We often emphasize the first part in the Western church that our belief is in Jesus. But what about this? That we are not only to believe, but to suffer for him. James 1, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. We'll see this theme coming up, that there's even a joy to be experienced in trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 2 Timothy, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Maybe no more, no verse in all of these verses that I'm reading is more baldly just stating that all of us who want to live a godly life, all of us who want to follow Jesus, will experience persecution. 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. A beautiful verse, this mercy and comfort that we long for from God. He comforts us where? In our affliction. So that we may all be able to, or that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. There's something actually happening in the suffering that we experience, the person and this, this comfort of God. So there's so much more. This is just a brief smattering of some of the passages in the New Testament. You know, in Romans, Paul has this whole section just called this present suffering. That's like, that's the whole, that's the whole emphasis of the entire uh, section of Romans. That's where we live is in this present suffering. And it's also all over the story of Acts. We haven't taken the time to look through the book of Acts. We've just looked at the, the first part where we see this, uh, all these people coming to faith and it's this beautiful picture in Acts 2 of, of uh, uh, the new church where they, you know, they have everything in common and they sell their possessions to love one another. But here's how some of the rest of the story goes. So they have this early new church and then Paul or Peter and John, they go out and they preach again and they're arrested. Is this surprising to them? No. They're arrested, they're beat, beat up, but they come back and they don't pray for the, the persecution to stop. They pray for more boldness, that they might go out and preach the word of God faithfully. So they're jailed again after this happens. And here's what happens in, in Acts 5. It says, They called the apostles and had them beat, flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. So what did the apostles do? They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing, this theme that we're seeing again and again. Rejoicing amidst suffering because they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And I think when I think about this shift, this passage just rings out to me and is so convicting. The shift that these guys have obviously made from an expectation that their life would be easy and fun and comfortable to just a completely different way of thinking where they might actually just rejoice because they were treated shamefully. How far is that from my expectation and from yours? So they go back and they preach more and, and what happens uh, is this guy named Stephen, another one of the early church members, gets stoned. And it says in Acts 8, on that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So again, this is just persecution that happens. And the second half of the book of Acts is all about this guy named Paul. And what's going to identify his ministry? This is what it says in chapter 9. The Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. This beautiful call of Paul that he is going to be uh, God's mouthpiece to take the gospel to people who have never heard it before. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This expectation that if he's going to follow God, if he's going to do this, carry this amazing privilege and the name of Jesus and the gospel, then he's going to suffer for the name of Jesus. 
like I said, these are just a few of the verses. And I didn't want to, maybe I did overwhelm you, but not too much. There are so many different verses in the New Testament that talk about this should be our expectation, not a life of comfort, but an expectation of suffering. So the question I want to look at the rest of our time is like, why is this not part of our identity? Why have many of us not made the shift from an expectation of a life of comfort to an expectation of a life of trials and suffering? Why doesn't it come to our minds when we think about what it means to follow Jesus? Maybe to put it more personally, why when we experience trials in our lives, just that things aren't going the way that we expect them to, why is one of our first inclinations to look at God and be like, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you blessing me? I am a good Christian. I even see this in myself as we go through these difficulties and continual setbacks with our building. I'm like, why, God, are you doing this? That's my, that's my initial attitude, my gut reaction. So it's not just you, it's me. I think we all uh, have not made this shift. Why, for example, when the pandemic comes, when we experience hardship in our lives, why does the church shrink and not grow? Well, I want to look at three reasons this week that, uh, that our identity has not shifted into um, a, an identity that looks like in the New Testament where we expect suffering. And then we'll look at one big one next week. So that's what we're going to do in the next two. So three reasons that I think that uh, we, have not, we have not made this shift. Well, the first reason that we haven't made this shift is because we don't expect it as part of our faith journey. It's not part of the narrative that we tell when we think about what it means to follow Jesus. Oftentimes when we talk about our faith or we talk about our church community, we use really great terms. So we might say, like, Jesus, God loves me so much that he is great and he's released me from my burden of sin, that he has saved me and he's done all these things for me. When we talk about our church family, we say, you know, that's a great group of people. Um, they're lovely and they, they are so hospitable and they love and serve one another. And all of these things are true about God and about our church family. And we often follow this up in saying, like, all you have to do is just to believe, to enter, which is a, a bit of a half-truth about what we need to do to follow Jesus, according to these passages that we looked at. Because it doesn't actually set us up for a life where we have to give everything, where we reciprocate what God has done for us by giving everything and us giving everything for him. And that seems to me to be more along the lines of how Jesus talked about what it meant to follow him. So when, he's, when he talks about it in uh, the, the Gospel of Mark that we looked at uh, last year, early in the year, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is his invitation. It's an invitation to follow him, yes, to become, to come to this God who is all loving and to be this new community in the world. But it's an invitation also to suffer and to die. The cross was a medieval torture instrument. And Jesus says, that's going to become your identity, that you pick that up every day and you follow me. Uh, on this path of downward mobility. You know, one of the parables that Jesus tells about what it means to follow him is, is he uses this example of a pearl of great price. That this guy finds a, a, an amazing pearl, and what does he do? He liquidates everything to buy it. And you might be like, a pearl? Like, honestly? But that's uh, of great value, I guess, back in that time. And Jesus says, this is what it's like to follow him. You find something that's of greater value than anything else, and so what do you do? You liquidate everything else. You get rid of it, you put it behind, you make it second place in order to pursue that, that the kingdom of God and what it means to follow Jesus, to sell everything, to give everything. You know, in Romans, Paul says that true worship, what characterized true worship of Jesus is to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices is an interesting paradox because sacrifices by their very nature are dead. But Paul uses this term, living sacrifices, and, and the problem then is that if we're a living sacrifice, we continually get off the altar. 
And so Paul is inviting us here as a true act of worship to follow Jesus that we continually again and again and again put ourselves in a position of sacrifice, that we die, that we suffer, and we give ourselves over and over again to a God who's given himself to us. That way that we've set our expectations, I think, about what the Christian life is, is cheapened. And so we don't make the shift because we don't even think that it's part of what we need to do. But when we reflect on how Jesus talks about the gospel and what it means to follow him, it's actually this invitation, like I said, to die, to suffer along with him for the God who suffered first for us. So that's the first reason. is It's not in the narrative that we think of when, when it, we think of what our you know, contract is to follow Jesus. The second reason that I think we haven't made this shift is because we lacked a vision for what suffering can accomplish in our lives. So we hear these passages in the Bible where he's like, I rejoice in my suffering. And it just sounds so foreign to us. We're like, unless you're like a masochist where you want to just suffer, like that's part of your identity and you really enjoy it. Why would you want to, how could you be able to rejoice in suffering? So we all lack a vision for what it accomplishes. So I want to just give us four things quickly. That, uh, that suffering accomplishes in our lives. The first is character. James 1 says it this way, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. There's that same language again. Joy in the midst of suffering. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's the reason on the other end is because I'm going to be, excuse me, I'm going to become a different person. I'm going to become somebody who looks more like Jesus. Uh, Pastor Francis Chen, who is maybe uh, the ambassador in our current society of suffering, he talks about this uh, in terms of like how they, how they recruit Navy SEALs. He said, you never recruit a Navy SEAL and be like, oh man, you're going to have such a good time. Like, it's going to be so easy and so much fun. Like, that would be a complete lie of what it means to be a Navy SEAL. Instead, they say like, no, it's going to be super hard. It's going to be the most difficult thing that you've ever done. But you're going to be a different kind of person when you come out the other end. You're going to be have new skills and new abilities, probably even going to look different because of what you endure. And that's what this passage is saying to us too, that the suffering in itself is not a good thing. It's only a good thing if it allows us to do, uh, to become who we were truly made to be, to become a person uh, who has the endurance of faith, as it says in this passage, or the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that we look more like Jesus in the end. And this is why it's so important to be a person and a community that watches and waits for what God is doing. That when we experience, like this passage says, trials in our lives, that our first uh, inclination isn't to be like, why God? But to actually look and say, where are you, God, in this? Where can I watch and wait for how you are actually inviting me to become more and more like the person of Jesus? And that takes a shift in the way that we think about suffering and trials. So the first is character. The second is checking. These all start with C. I had a little bit of extra time this week, so, um, or actually they, they sort of start with C. They sound, um, but checking is the second one. First Peter 1 says it this way, You're, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See the path in the middle of this passage that you experience trial so that you have proven character of your faith. It's very similar to what the passage in James says, that it's a way of checking. When we experience trials and difficulties and suffering, it's a way for us of checking 
whether our faith is genuine or not. Um, in, in the last couple years, they've been a really difficult years for me. And I, I've talked about this before, but I, in case you didn't know, I um, became the pastor just two years ago, almost exactly two years ago. And then shortly after, I was diagnosed with cancer. And in that same week, the pandemic hit, and that fundamentally changed our church life. And then there's been other things that have happened since that. But in this whole journey, there have been times where I've been like, God, why me? Why now? Why, why are we doing this? And a verse that I've talked about that has become very, very close to me in this time is from Habakkuk 3, where uh, the prophet says, through the fig, or sorry, though the fig tree does not bud, though there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no fruit, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stall, just like bad news after bad news after bad news. And it can feel like that in our lives sometimes. You know, that's the, the old saying, when it rains, it pours. It just feels like there's just bad thing after difficult thing after disappointing thing happening to us. And I felt that way in the past few years. But these last two lines have challenged me. It says, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And as I spent time on the radiation table or taking chemo or away from my family because of COVID and cancer, this, this passage has become just a huge challenge to me. It seems like, you know, my life is still a really good life and praise God at this point, as far as they know, I don't have any cancer in my body. But there have been times where it seems like everything is going wrong. Am I still willing to celebrate in the Lord? Am I willing to rejoice because God is with me? If nothing else, God is with me. And it's a check. It, that time has been and still is as, with the various difficulties we're going through with our building. It's, it's a check of my faith is the most important thing for me, the thing at the center, the thing that continues to move me forward. Is it that God is with me, that he has saved me, that he is near to me? Or is it all the other things around, the fig tree that's budding or flocks in the pen? So it's a check for our faith. The third thing is closeness that it brings us. Romans 8 says it this way. It's, this is a translation from the message. It's one of my favorite passages that the message has, Romans 8. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with a new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. Maybe for some of you that just describes your faith life. You kind of just feel suck, stuck in between following God and this old life that you have, maybe the draws of the allure of other things in your life. And this passage is saying like the spirit in us beckons us that there's just things to do and places to go that, that you don't owe that any, anything. Make the decision to follow God instead. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's an adventurously expectant. It is adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. Just all these beautiful things that we, that we inherit as God's children, that we have the identity of being his children, that we call out to him as Papa, this closeness that we have with him. And I think so many of us long for those things. We want to feel close to God. We want to have the spirit of adoption. We want to be able to cry out to God as if he's like our dad. But this is how the passage finishes. We have these things if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. If we want this closeness with God that the spirit brings into our lives, the question for us needs to be like, what do we do with our moments of disappointment? 
What do we do when things aren't working out according to plan, when our lives aren't going up and to the right but seem to be taking a nosedive? What do you do when your faith and your commitment to Jesus puts you in awkward spots with your family or with your friends? The path to closeness and intimacy with God comes, according to this passage, through the path of suffering with him. And that's such a key term, with him, that he is maybe not absent in our suffering, but this is the moment when he wants to draw close to us, with him. That's the moment where we do maybe most tangibly experience the closeness that we have with God. So that's the third thing. The final is killing sin. Here's where I cheated on the C's. It's a K. Killing sin. 1 Peter 4, 1 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Suffering is the key to overcoming sin in our lives. And I think all of us, well, we do. We all uh, struggle with different areas of sin. And what often happens is that we'll pray that God would take it away. And by which we mean, I want you to stop me from wanting to do this thing, whatever the sin is in your life. And sometimes, miraculously, God does. He just takes the desire away for that sin. But more often than not, God doesn't. He doesn't take the desire away. And so what we, we, don't, we don't stop doing it. We don't stop engaging in that sin. And it goes on repeat. We engage in the sin again. And we feel bad and we repent and we ask God, oh, take the desire away from that sin. And maybe we have no desire for a short period of time. But once the consequences from that sin are gone, we engage in it again. And it's just this nasty cycle where we continue to go back to square one, where we, we ask God, I'll oh, take away my desire for sin. He doesn't do it. And therefore, we just continue on in this loop. And one of the reasons why I think we do this is because we have no vision for suffering with God to kill our sin. We continue to pray for a miracle. God, stop me from wanting this thing. Instead of having a vision for partnership, which I've tried to say is so key, it's a baseline for what it means to follow God. That God wants to partner with us through suffering to kill sin. The idea is that Jesus suffered, so I will also suffer. And when I do that, we partner together to kill sin in my life. It's part of saying no to that sin is that, yeah, I still really, really want it, but I'm going to say no to it today, maybe in this moment, maybe just for this 10 minutes. And that's going to hurt and it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to do it in order to partner with God to actually kill the sin in my life. Well, the third and final reason that, that I think we, many of us have not made this shift from being people who expect comfort in our life with Jesus to people who expect suffering and trial is because we haven't fully identified with Jesus as the suffering Savior. First Peter 2 puts it this way, when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, it brings favor with God. But you were called, For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. One author that I really like, he says that in Western Christianity, we have a Jesus who is worshipped but not followed and a Jesus who is believed in but not our example. He's worshipped but not followed. He's believed in and not our example. And of course, he's advocating not that we just switch and uh, he's our, only our example and someone we follow, but that we need all four. That Jesus is someone we worship, that he is the reigning king of the, of the cosmos, but also that he is our rabbi, that he is someone that we come alongside of and we apprentice under. Not only do we believe in all the things that Jesus says about himself and about us and our world and believe in the truth of the gospel, but also that we, he is our example, as this passage says, that he is someone that we, we seek to follow and, and we use as, as the vision of what it means to be truly human. And this is closer to the fully orbed gospel that I think we need. 
that Jesus does come and he suffers for us, that he walks this path of downward mobility that we saw in the Gospel of Mark. Not because he loves suffering. There's many times in the Gospels where Jesus is like, you know, take this away from me. I don't want to go through this if I don't have to. But in Hebrews, it says that he did it for the joy set before him. Maybe if we look at our pattern that we're a- he was able to rejoice in suffering for a reason. And what are those reasons according to the Gospel? He rejoiced in suffering so that we could have a new place in the family of God. So that all those things would be true about us, the shifts that we talked about, that we would go from people who are outside God's family through Jesus, through his blood, as it says, to becoming inside of his family, to receiving that inheritance that will never perish and never fade away. That's what, why, how Jesus walked through suffering. He walked through suffering so that our suffering would not be meaningless but they would actually have a purpose, that we would, might even learn to rejoice in the suffering that we have because it brings favor and glory to God when we learn to walk this path along with him, that it points out a God who is willing to suffer with and for us. Jesus walked through suffering so that he could be with us in our suffering. In the times that we walk through difficulties and trials in our life, we can go to a God who knows what that feels like and we can identify, he, he identifies with us. And we can choose in the same way to identify with him. That we might learn to be with him. That maybe in those moments he's not distanced, but he's very, very close when we go through suffering and a difficult time. And so that we can, and, and the, finally Jesus goes through suffering so that we can learn to not avoid suffering, but to expect it in our lives. If Jesus is our example, then like our Savior, when we live in this broken world, We should expect to suffer, but we can do it with the joy that God has invited us into his family and that he is not distant from us in our times of suffering, but that he is very near. As a church family, I just think this shift is so, so important. And again, like I said, it's just one that's so foreign to us as Western Christians. that We move from an expectation of comfort to an expectation of suffering. But if we want to become this different kind of community, we need to have a vision for a Jesus who suffered on our behalf and a Jesus who is our example. We need to have a vision for what suffering does in our lives. Not as people who are like, yeah, I want to suffer, but as people who have an understanding and an expectation when that comes in our lives, there can be a purpose. And as we walk through suffering together, that we might actually shine the light of the face of Jesus out into our world in a very different way. So in response, I just have a couple of thoughts. You know, I don't know what's going on in your life, but maybe what is one thing that you're looking at in your life right now that's a trial? or something that you're suffering through. It can be something really big. Like for me, it was cancer recently in my life. Or it could be something just really small, something that's just, you know, kind of the straw that's breaking the camel's back. Um, but what, what, are, what are those things in your life that God might be calling you into that you can actually, instead of avoiding them or, or learning to ask why, God, why are you doing this, to ask God, where are you in this and learn to partner with him. And I'll just mention one thing in this response section. You know, one of the things for me in my life that's, that's not it's suffering but a trial, but it's, it's giving. You know, Vancouver's a super expensive place to live. And uh, it's always, I'm a super cheap person as well. So giving is always one of those disciplines that's really hard for me. You know, maybe for you, that's an area that God is calling you to walk into. Not something we talk about every week, but something I felt drawn to mention at this season and in this sermon. You know, maybe for you, the response option is to baptism. That you're that person who's just been teetering on the edge. And uh, as Romans 8 says, like, you just need to hear that call away from that old life. You don't owe it anything. And the Spirit is just calling you into a new adventure. 
And baptism and walking through the process of becoming baptized can be one of those ways. That invitation that we formalize that I am not outside of God's family anymore. I'm not dead, but I am now alive through Christ and what he's done. And finally, I don't know where you are or what you're doing, but the invitation of communion. That is one of the places where we come to the broken bread. Christ's body broke for us, symbolizing a suffering and broken Savior. His blood poured out on our behalf. It's a picture of a suffering God every time we come and we do that together. So if you're at home and you're able to or you're with people around you, I just encourage you to take communion together. And as you do, to to take the opportunity to identify with the suffering Savior and open yourself up from moving from an expectation in your life of easy street, of, of life being a life of comfort, to identifying with a Savior who would come and for a purpose, for the great joy set before him, would be willing to suffer for you and for I. You close with me in prayer. God, thank you for this picture. And, um, well, I mean, it's, it's a hard one. It's a hard one for us to hear. It's not something we want to hear, um, at least not for me. I'd like to hear the, the tale of victory and that everything is going to be great and going to be easy. But thank you for making sense of our suffering in a suffering world. And so for many of us, we know that when the veneer of um, all positivity is stripped off, we see that our world is a place that does involve a lot of suffering, and our lives do as well. Help us not to be unaware of the suffering around us and help us to be willing to partner with you so that we might have a a, a voice to speak. We might have your voice to speak and your face to shine into those places of suffering in our church community and in the watching world around us. So meet us together as we respond, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.